Thank you, Lisa. For now, as you um, heard from our intern, Minister Jen, earlier uh, in the story for all ages, the stories we tell matter. We make choices, and the choices we make matter about which stories do we teach our children? Which stories do we tell and retell year after year? Our choices matter as well about what stories we don't tell that we allow to be neglected or suppressed. And regarding the stories and perspectives that are most or least prominent in our culture, always be sure to notice who decides, who benefits from which stories are told. And I bring this up because tomorrow and the next day, May 31st and June 1st, will mark the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. And although this event is now recognized as the single deadliest outbreak of white terrorist violence against a Black community in American history, the telling of this history was neglected and actively suppressed for many years. Educators didn't teach it. Government offices didn't record it. Even the archival copies of some newspaper accounts have been selectively expunged. We do not have them to this day. They've been destroyed completely, as far as we can tell. But in recent years, the tide has started to turn. And let me share my screen with you to share a little bit more. Things like the Tulsa public school system finally committing to incorporating this history as part of their standard curriculum. And for the general public, I hope to get to Tulsa someday, uh, as, as Jen and uh, Julia Jones preached about this last year and others have had a chance to do, that for the general public, Greenwood Rising is a permanent history center in Tulsa opening soon to honor the legacy of all impacted by these events and inspire meaningful, sustainable action toward a more equitable future. So this is the Greenwood community that was destroyed. So you see the sign on the left, Greenwood Avenue, and you see above that it was known as Black Wall Street. Notice as well the prominent quote from James Baldwin at the entrance to this new history center. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And that's what we're about this morning. Along these lines, last year, Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice Initiative partnered with um, Tulsa Community's Remembrance Coalition to place a historical marker that attempts to tell the story in a brief 200 words of what happened 100 years ago this week. There also have been lynchings of African-Americans in Frederick County, so you'll see some similar markers coming up in Frederick County, more about that to come. For now, to talk about this Tulsa uh, historical marker. I'll read it to you now. On May 31st to June 1st, 1921, a white mob attacked the prosperous Black neighborhood of Greenwood in Tulsa, resulting in the deaths of at least 36 Black Tulsans. The destruction, listen to this number, the destruction of 36 city blocks and the displacement of 10,000 Black people. Before. After. The historical marker continues that on May 31st, Dick Rowland, a 19-year-old Black teenager, was jailed after being accused of assaulting a white woman. Although the charges were dropped, the local Tulsa Tribune newspaper published an inflammatory story that mobilized a white mob to lynch Rowland. 
in response, members of the Black community stationed themselves at the courthouse to protect him. Reports indicate that local authorities provided firearms and ammunition to the mob of thousands of white people who began firing at Black men trying to protect Roland. Let me read that last part again, because it's so important to understanding how did this get so out of control that 36 city blocks were destroyed? So instead of dispersing the white mob, local authorities provided firearms and ammunition to them. And they then began firing at black men trying to protect Roland. When these men retreated back toward Greenwood, the black community, the mob joined joined by city-appointed deputies, pursued them and began terrorizing the entire community, deliberately shooting Black residents, burning homes and buildings. It's also said, and this is a, one of the points of controversy, apparently one of the reasons the destruction was so widespread is airplanes were involved. People that had like planes for, for, were used to help destroy the area. When the Oklahoma National Guard was called to intervene, they ignored the mob's rampage, and instead of arresting the white people causing all the destruction, they arrested hundreds of Black survivors. Public officials failed to keep record of the Black people who were wounded or killed. Uh, the early estimates were at least 36 people died. Witness accounts report that actually more than 300 Black people were killed, probably in mass graves. Only now, 100 years later, are the mass graves of those hundreds of Black people being searched for in earnest, and in some cases found. No one was held accountable for Greenwood's devastation. Its only surviving foundation now sits under Mount Vernon AME Church, which is why this site was chosen for the historical marker. Now, this history is hard to hear, but how much more devastating for those to whom it happened to have awareness of these events neglected and suppressed? As psychologists tell us, whenever we try to repress something, either individually or collectively as a people, it doesn't actually go away. It just tends to come out in perverted and twisted ways. As the saying goes, what we resist persists, but what we feel we can heal. And being increasingly honest about our past as a country is one path to potential healing. In that spirit, let me say just a little more about why it is especially devastating that this particular neighborhood was destroyed at this particular time. Almost a decade prior, it was Booker T. Washington who had visited this pro prosperous Greenwood neighborhood in Tulsa and had nicknamed it Black Wall Street. And drawing from some incredible in-depth archival research and reconstruction done by the New York Times, I can give you a sense of why. Keep in mind, we are, this happened in 1921. We're talking about things that happened decades before the Civil Rights Movement. So decades before the Civil Rights Movement, African-Americans in Tulsa had built this truly remarkable community um, it, of Black Wall Street. And this image will give you a sense of the area that we're talking about. Again, 36 city blocks and that resulted in the displacement of 10,000 Black people who lived in this prosperous Tulsa neighborhood. To highlight just one central block, in this section alone of Black Wall Street, there were 70 businesses operated in mostly one, two, and three-story red brick buildings. They were almost exclusively owned and operated by Black entrepreneurs. 
The 70 plus black owned businesses on just this block included four hotels, two newspapers, eight doctors, seven barbers, nine restaurants, a half dozen professional offices of real estate agents, dentists, lawyers, a cabaret and a cigar shop too. Greenwood was a thriving community in which black Americans could circulate freely and safely. You could shop for groceries, play pool, take in a theater show, eat dinner, get your hair styled without ever leaving just that one central block. And there was, of course, much more in the neighborhood as a whole. And I want to introduce you to a few of the fascinating people who made Black Wall Street a reality. Lula and John Williams owned a candy shop in the Greenwood neighborhood, as well as the beloved Dreamland Theater that could seat up to 750 people. Some of the path-breaking women who were entrepreneurs on Black Wall Street included Mary Parrish on the left, who ran a typing school, and Mabel Little on the right, who ran a beauty salon. Buck Franklin was a lawyer who, after his office was destroyed, persevered and continued offering legal services from a tent. James Nails and other members of his family ran a shoe shop, a dance hall, and a skating rink. The Stratford family owned a renowned 54-room luxury hotel. Overall, the more I learn about the incredibly impressive people and the really phenomenal places of Black Wall Street, the more devastating it is to know that it was obliterated in less than 24 hours. What an incredible theft of Black life, of Black joy, of Black community. The white mob looted and set ablaze practically every home and business in the entire 36-block Greenwood district. More than a dozen churches, five hotels, 31 restaurants, four huge stores, eight doctor's offices, two dozen grocery stores, a public library, and more than 1,000 homes lay in ruin. A hundred years later, telling this story is important to inform and inspire our work in the present, that white supremacy culture must be resisted and dismantled. We must commit to building up a diverse, beloved multicultural community. Accordingly, I also need to name, as, as Jen mentioned, some important parts of the story that connect to our own UU history. Richard Lloyd-Jones was the editor and publisher of the Tulsa Tribune, the newspaper that published that article that helped incite the white mob. There's also an additional editorial that he very likely wrote. That's part of what has seemingly been expunged from history. So no one can prove it. But apparently he basically said, go out and do this lynching. He was a lifelong Unitarian. He was the son of Jenkins Lloyd-Jones, a beloved and influential leader in the Unitarian movement, although the son did not carry on the legacy of his father's more progressive social commitments. And it's important to emphasize that Richard Lloyd-Jones, he was not just a little bit Unitarian. To name only two major examples, in the early 1940s, so you know, two decades after he was part of this, he served as vice president of the American Unitarian Association. He was a major co-founder of All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which today is the largest UU congregation in the world with more than 2,000 members. 
I'll share with you just a little of the background behind his role in the Tulsa race massacre. Richard Lloyd Jones published, I mean, purchased the Tulsa Tribune on December 1st, 1919, less than two years before the tragic events on which we've been reflecting. And he immediately began to engage in sensationalistic tabloid journalism. He was trying to compete with the Tulsa world, which had a larger subscriber base. And because multiple things can be true, we can admit that he's not this mustache twirling villain. It's true both that Jones had a number of personal friendships with African-Americans over the years, and it's also true that Jones regularly exploited racial resentments to sell newspapers. Moreover, during the next 50 years that he owned the paper, his newspaper did not again mention the riot. Ultimately, it matters much less whether Jones held racial prejudice in his heart against individuals. And it matters much more that he chose to regularly exploit systemic racism for his own financial advantage and to never commit to being accountable to what he had contributed to. The stories we tell matter. The choices we make matter about which stories to tell, which stories to neglect or suppress. And regarding the stories and perspectives that are most and least prominent in our culture, notice who decides, who benefits. It matters that Richard Lloyd-Jones had a reputation as a generous and devoted Unitarian, at least among white Unitarians, and that he was not held accountable by white Unitarians for his direct role in helping incite the deadliest outbreak of white terrorist violence against a Black community in American history. Now, there's a whole lot more to say about all this. If you're curious to learn more, there are at least three new documentaries being released. The early word is that the History Channel's Tulsa Burning, the 1921 race massacre, is the best of the lot. Uh, but PBS's Tulsa, the Fire and the Forgotten and National Geographic's um, Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer are also supposed to be well worth watching. I should also hasten to add that if you prefer fictionalized accounts to nonfiction, HBO released a remarkable series uh, titled Watchmen a few years ago that opens with a powerful montage of the Tulsa race massacre. You can see the plane on the right in the background. And that whole series, about 10 episodes of Watchmen, is an extended reimagining of a world profoundly shaped by this particular moment of racialized violence. All within the alternative history of Alan Moore's deconstruction of the superhero genre. I have a whole lot to say about all that, but for now, I'll have to allow it to suffice it to say that Watchmen is one of the most original, subversive, and important shows of recent years. It's a little weird, so you just got to hang with it. It's going to take a little bit to hang on if you give it a shot. Um, but for now, as I move toward my conclusion, I want to zoom out just briefly and say that there's also, a, of course, a bigger picture beyond these two days 100 years ago. Although this moment of the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre is a very auspicious occasion um, for remembering this particular story that's been too often suppressed, I want to also recognize that what happened in Tulsa in 1921, though truly uniquely horrific, was far from an isolated incident. Over the course of American history, there were more than 250 episodes 
of course, many more individual, but more than 250 episodes of collective white violence against Black communities that have occurred. Just two years prior to the Tulsa massacre, similar large-scale outbreaks of white terrorist violence against Black communities happened in Dewey, Oklahoma, Elaine, Arkansas, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Illinois. You can look these up as well. These stories matter too and also have reverberations that continue into our present day. As I've been sitting myself with the story of the Tulsa race massacre in preparation for this Sunday, one quote that keeps coming to mind is from Robin D.J. Kelly. He's a distinguished professor of U.S. history at UCLA and has written that we need to be honest. This country, our country, was built on looting. The looting of indigenous lands and of African labor. African Americans, in fact, have much more experience being looted than looting. White mobs, often backed by the police, not only looted and burned Black homes and businesses, but often maimed and killed Black people. Our bodies were loot. A system of governance that suppressed our wages, relieved us of property, and excluded Black people from equal schools and public accommodation is a form of looting. We can add to that list racially biased mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow, and more. And one of the major unresolved issues on this 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre is reparations for the tremendous loss of life and wealth from the destruction of Black Wall Street. More broadly, last month, H.R. 40, the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act, made it out of committee in the U.S. House of Representatives for the first time. So keep an eye on that bill, H.R. 40. Note that it's not about a specific method of reparations. Rather, it is to appoint an official committee to study and develop proposals, such as how best to close the racial wealth gap which we've explored in depth in a previous service. For now, it is significant to have an increasingly honest reckoning with the painful truths in our country's past. That is a crucial step toward the possibility of a more hopeful future. In that spirit, as we hold in our hearts the events of the past to inspire us to remain committed to build a better, more inclusive and equitable world, the one that we dream about, let's sing together, building a new way.